I want to minister for a little while this morning through a message I'm calling Hidden with Christ. If I wasn't absolutely confident that my life was hidden with Christ, my life would be like mercury in a thermometer. It would be up one day and down the next. And to be honest with you, I don't want to live that way. I want to live in all the fullness and the grace of God and, and know Him daily. Jesus said, you can know me. My sheep know me. They know my voice. There was a time in my life when I vacillated between He loves me, He loves me not, but not anymore. There is not one moment of one day that I think, does He love me today? I know He loves me. And He loves me every moment of every day. And the wonderful truth about grace, what I've seen it do in people's lives, I've seen it strip away the condemnation when people blow it, when people fail, when people miss it. You call it whatever you want to call it, but when we fall short, if you will, instead of beating yourself up for a week or a month or a year, and some people beat themselves up for a lifetime, I've watched God's grace just strip that away because we go back to, He always loves me. His grace is always on my life. Having said that, I am not moved by outward temperature, I am moved by inward truth. Now you may have to stop and think about that for a second. When I say outward temperature, I'm talking about the climate, all the things that come at us externally. There's a lot of things I don't like, but I am not moved by those things. I am moved by inward truth. David said these words in Psalm chapter 51 and verse 6. He said, Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret place. Or another way to say that, he's saying, you teach me wisdom in the hidden place. It was almost as though David had a new covenant revelation under an old covenant system. You see, Christ may have been hidden from David, but David was not hidden from Christ. He said, behold, you delight in truth. And you see, Jesus is truth. In fact, he said that in John 14, 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he said, absolutely no man comes to the Father except through me. I am truth. I am the truth. If I were to read that Old Covenant Scripture through a New Covenant lens, it would read this way, Behold, you delight in Jesus on the inside of man. You teach wisdom to those who are hidden with Christ. Who are we hidden with? We are hidden with Christ. Jesus is our secret place. That doesn't mean you keep Him secret, but Jesus is that hidden place. He is that secret place. And that's what I want you to see through the message today, and hopefully it will provoke your taste buds to feast on the goodness of Jesus. I was thinking about this this week. I am very thankful for my five senses. I can see, I can hear, I can smell, I can taste, and I can touch. And with the exception of taste, every one of those other senses don't always tell me exactly the truth, if you will. 
In other words, I can get tricked sometimes by what I see. I mean, we always see things and we're like, what, what did I just see? And it turns out to be nothing like what you just saw. You have to take second looks and you're like, what? And I'll tell you what, we hear things that turned out to be absolutely wrong. I mean, in terms of what was actually said. I don't think any of us need any examples on that. And we all hear things and we're like, what did you say? And then when they say it again, it's totally different. But my taste buds, they're kind of always on. I mean, if you set 100 bowls of soup in front of me and gave me a spoon and I took a big spoonful of that soup, if I didn't like the first bite, I guarantee I won't like the second bite. I mean, there's never been a time where I've taken a bite of soup and go, oh, that's just absolutely terrible. And somebody says, try it again. And I took another bite and they said, oh, and I said, man, that's absolutely delicious. I mean, your taste buds are spot on, aren't they? You might get tricked in terms of what's in the soup. You may not understand all the ingredients. You may think that it has a certain ingredient in there. But I'm going to tell you something. You know what you like, and you know what you don't like. I wonder if that's what David was getting at, you know, when he said in Psalm 34, verse 8, he said, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Truth and grace have flavors to them that are unlike religion. Truth and grace can be seen, yes. They can be heard, they can be smelled, they can be touched, they can be tasted. That's because truth and grace is a person and his name is Jesus. When you taste of the Lord's fullness of grace and truth, you will find it to be very robust and hidden with all kinds of wonderful flavors. I love that about Jesus. Just when you think, wow, Jesus, we've been down this road before, but he shows you new expressions of himself. He shows you new graces. He touches our hearts in a way that only he can touch our hearts. Now, what I want to say is many believers are moved solely by feelings and emotions. They are moved by what they hear, and they are moved by what they see, and they are moved by what touches them. Those feelings and those emotions are like mercury in the thermometer. It can be up one moment and down the next, moved by the temperature of this world rather than moved by Christ. I am moved by Christ, or another way to say it, I am moved by the finished work of the cross. That's what moves me, Jesus and his finished work. I am moved by Christ. In Acts chapter 17, verse 28, the Bible says, for in him, who's him? It's Jesus, it's Christ. In him we live. We don't just exist, we live. We don't just get by, we live. It's not status quo, it's not keeping up with the Joneses. In him we live, the Bible says, and move. Oh, yes, we live and move. And the Bible says, and we have our being. In other words, we have our identity in him. I'm in Christ. It's in him that I live and move and have my being. Now, let me ask you this. If you think about this word moved, how deep do you think we'd have to run down from Genesis in the Bible till we ran into that word move? Would we have to go seven or eight books in the Bible? Would we have to go 10 or 15 chapters? Friends, I wanna tell you something, we run into that word moved in the second verse. Genesis chapter one, verse two, but let me throw in verse three as well. Now the Bible says, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God, there's that word, 
moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. Now I want you to take those two verses and hold them hostage just for a moment as you consider this. Suppose that you were to ask me to write my own autobiography. Just in case you don't know what an autobiography is, it is a book, if you will, that is written by the person who it's about. Now, suppose the only framework you gave me in writing this book, you gave me one rule, if you will, that I had to summarize my autobiography down to a point that my entire autobiography would fit on a piece of paper the size of a gum wrapper. Oh, you say, man, that's an impossible task. No, it's very possible. You say, what would my autobiography read like? Remember the two scriptures I told you to take hostage for a moment? Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. Friends, that is my autobiography emulsified into a short statement. Mark was formless and empty and was living in darkness. But the Spirit of God moved upon the surface of Mark's heart with these words, let there be light. And there was light. In fact, the light of life walked right into my heart. And God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from darkness and Mark was hidden with Christ, the light of the world. That is the abridged version of my autobiography. I just saved me a whole lot of time writing it and you a whole lot of time reading it, friends. Mark was those things, but Christ, but the light of the world walked into our heart and he separated the light from the darkness. Oh, what good news. Yes, I realize that those scriptures are in the context of creation, but I also realize that I'm a new creation in Christ. The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Friends, those two scriptures summarize my autobiography. It's a portrait of what my life looked like before Christ. Formless, empty, and dark. I was an ugly letter stuffed into a beautiful envelope when I was hidden with Christ. Now that the transforming love of Christ's grace has moved upon my heart, I am a sweet fragrance in the nostrils of my daddy and a sweet honeycomb to his taste buds, friends. Hidden with Christ, listen, take ownership of this. Hidden with Christ, we are full of light, we are full of goodness, and we have been separated from darkness. Amen? Now, I want to take you through a New Testament narrative that I believe showcases the transforming power of light moving upon a darkened soul of a man by the name of Saul, a man who would be transformed into the person we know as the Apostle Paul. You see, Saul was arresting Christians all in the name of God, all in the name of religion, and from the heavenly throne, God said in his heart, I delight in truth in the inward being Saul, you're formless and empty and only light. Only Jesus can separate the darkness of religion from the true light of grace. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 18. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous thoughts against the Lord's disciples. 
He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. What light am I talking about? I'm talking about the same light that was present with God in the beginning. It's the same light, friends. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now watch what he says. He said, who are you, Lord? Now he doesn't know this to be Jesus. In those days, they would use Lord like we use sir. Who are you, sir? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, and when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. Look at this. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. By the way, the word straight there means true. True, T-R-U-E. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. And then Ananias comes back with this excuse this thing that's troubling him, and the Lord says, go. We don't always need a whole bunch of words. They don't have to come necessarily from a whole bunch of different people. All we need to know is settle it in our heart that we've been hidden with Christ. He lives on the inside of us and just listen for his voice. The Lord said, go. I love what he said. He said, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. You see those words? He said, this man is my chosen instrument. Out of all the people that God could have picked, Saul was God's choice. The Lord says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. You say, Pastor Mark, can you explain to me how a man who thinks he's doing the will of God can be a million miles away from God's true heart? I sure can. It's called religion. That's all it is, really. Saul didn't have truth in the inward being. He was operating from the old covenant law is what he was doing and not under the new covenant of grace. But I love this. 
the Bible says in that narrative, for three days, a formless and empty and dark-hearted man by the name of Saul was hidden away in a house on Straight Street. He was that ugly letter that was marinating in an envelope of grace on Straight Street. Again, that word straight means true. It's interesting, I think, that Saul ended up on True Street. Oh, God's going to do a work of truth in his heart, that's for sure. But during these three days, what was happening was Paul was transitioning from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, exactly as Jesus did when he spent three days and three nights in the earth experiencing the contractions and the labor pains of birthing in the New Covenant. And then a man by the name of Ananias receives a vision from the Lord with instructions to go to Saul and lay hands on him that his eyesight might be restored. Now this is the part I want you to see. I don't want to rush this, but here's what it is. The name Ananias is a Greek name, but it originates from the Hebrew name Hananiah. If you remember, Hananiah was one of the three Hebrew children that were thrown into the fiery furnace. We call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Hananiah, or the way you would pronounce it, is Hananiah. Hananiah actually comes from two Hebrew words, Hanah and Yah. Hananiah, that's how that Hananiah is pronounced. Hanan is grace. Hanan means grace, and Yah is God, like we say Yahweh or Jehovah. It's the sacred name for God. I want to ask you a question. Do you see who's knocking on Saul's door? It is none other than the grace of God revealed through a man by the name of Ananias. I mean, of all the people he could have sent. I mean, listen, friends, nobody would have understood that then, but we understand that now because we can look back. We're under the substance. We can look back and go, wow, look at that. Grace was knocking on his door. The grace of God is knocking on the door of a murderer. The grace of God is knocking on the door of a man who lives and eats and breathes the Mosaic law. The grace of God has arrived on True Street and is about to lift the scales of darkness from the eyes of Saul by the laying on of hands of Ananias while he reminds him that, Brother Saul, it was Jesus that blinded you by the light. What light am I talking about? I'm talking about the light of the gospel of the glory of God that surfaced in front of a man by the name of Saul on his road to Damascus through the face of Christ. Folks, I couldn't make that up in a million years. I'm not that smart to make that kind of stuff up. Do you suppose daddy wants scales to fall from the eyes of the religious people even today from the church and from the hearts of people? After Paul's conversion, he disappeared into what we call the Arabian Desert for three years. And it was in those three years that he was taught by Jesus himself. I don't know exactly what that looked like. I'm sure it didn't look like Jesus when he taught his 12 disciples, but he was taught by Christ himself. And then after those three years, he emerged ready to communicate the truth that he had learned in the secret place that God had tucked him away for those three years. We find that truth actually in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 18. 
The Apostle Paul says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. He said, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when, I love those two words, but when, but when God, but when God who set me apart from my mother's womb, that's a secret place too, the womb. That's where Jeremiah was tucked away. The Bible says that God knew Jeremiah from the secret place that was in his mother's womb. He says, but when God who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. He called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. He said, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. Now, there's some wisdom in that. I don't want to get off on a tangent here, but I mean, there's some wisdom in that. I believe we need to talk to other people about things. But when we have a word from God and we know it's from God, Sometimes you'll run into people that will give you a word that's diametrically different than what God gave you. And the Apostle Paul said, I decided, listen, I'm not going to consult another human being. I already got it from the top. Jesus already gave it to me. It just is pure and lovely. And he was given that to me when I was in this hidden place, this secret place. He says, I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. The Apostle Paul is making sure here that we understand that his revelation of grace was not corrupted by man's interpretation. That's very important because when we study the New Testament in particular and we see the person who has the greatest revelation of grace, it is none other than the Apostle Paul. I mean, every one of his letters he is telling us about the grace of God. He is showing us our true identity in Christ. And he has the greatest revelation. But he wants us to understand that no man came in and corrupted this. Jesus himself was his teacher for three years in the Arabian desert, the secret place where Paul was tucked away so that he could fearlessly and more importantly, accurately preach the gospel. Anytime anybody adds anything to the gospel, for you to be saved, that is not the gospel. It is never the gospel plus, it's the gospel alone. Gospel means good news, right? It means good news. And if someone adds bad news to it, that is not the gospel. It's no longer the gospel. It is a corrupted thing. And the Apostle Paul is saying, I'm making sure that nobody corrupted, no man came in and corrupted what Jesus had taught me. We see another biblical narrative of light moving upon the darkened soul of a woman who is unnamed. If there's anybody in the Bible that needed a secret place to run to, it is this woman here. She had lived a checkered and tattered and littered life. Oh, she had secrets, but no secret place to run to. But God, but God, the same God that came knocking on True Street, made his way into the temple courts. And we see this truth picked up in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. 
The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. They were right. That was in the law. And Jesus knew that was right because he knew the law. But they said, now what is it that you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first one to throw a stone at her. It wouldn't surprise me if before he drew that line in the dirt that he reached over and grabbed her and pulled her over on the same side of the line with him and said, now he that is without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. When he said, again, he that is without sin, that word sin there is only used one time in the entire Bible. And that literally means he that has never ever one time in your entire life committed a sin. That's why they had to walk away, because they understood exactly what Jesus was saying. See, when we use the word sin, we can get a little mixed up, because there's hemartia, and there's hemartano, there's the noun, there's the verb, but this is the adjective. What it means is he that who has never, ever once in your entire life committed a sin. They had to leave, they had no choice. Now that leaves Jesus with her, and Jesus is the only one who's never committed a sin, and under the law, Moses did command that you could stone this woman. But Jesus doesn't stone her. Isn't this a gorgeous narrative when you think about this? I mean, come on, Jesus. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard him began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And again, I always like to say the older ones first, because they understood the scriptures better. The younger ones would have looked to the older ones to see what are you going to do in this situation. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. What will be the next thing he says to all the people? He's already had the one-on-one -on -one with her. He may have just kind of somewhat whispered that or spoke it softly and said, now go and leave your life of sin. He dropped back into that temple court again and he said the very next verse, verse 12, he said, when Jesus spoke again to the people, not the Pharisees, the people that he was teaching, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. What light was Jesus talking about? He was talking about himself. He is the light that was present with God when God said, let there be light, the light that separates darkness. The darkness of sin, as far as the east is from the west, the light that gives us the power to leave our lives of sin. See, it's his light, it's his grace, it's his truth working in us that gives us the power to leave that life. The light that says, neither do I condemn you. The light that showed up on True Street. The light that was coming into the world. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, we find these words. Since then you have been raised with Christ. 
Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Look at these words. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Oh, please, don't rush that. Please take a look at that. It says your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And I always like to think, when I think about hidden with Christ in God, that means when God looks at Christ, he can't tell where Christ starts and you finish and you start and he finishes. He sees you as one. Only God could do something like that. Only a loving father could do that. Only God could do that. Wow. When Christ, who is your life. Friends, I want to tell you something. You want to walk in victory, make Christ your life. Don't make him just a part of your life. Make him your life. Somebody was asking me the other day, don't you like sports? I said, well, I like it, but I, I just don't have time. Why don't you have time? Because Christ is my life. You know, I mean, listen, I don't have any problem with it. Now, I'm not judging anybody. If that's how you, but Christ is my life. If there were 48 hours in the day, Christ would still be my life. I probably still wouldn't have time. It's okay. It's all right. Don't let it condemn you. But he just looked at me like, Man, you're just a weirdo. He's my life. The Bible says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Where are we hidden at? We're hidden in Christ. It's in his secret place. It's in Christ that we live and move and have our being. In Psalm chapter 91, verses 1 through 16, this is a powerful psalm. I think there's probably been more soldiers that have prayed this psalm when they've been in distant countries because this is what we see as our protection verses. And I love these verses. I've got pretty much them memorized by heart, but anyway, I love these verses right here. They bring such comfort. And can you imagine all the soldiers that have been in a trench somewhere looking at that 91st Psalm and praying that psalm, he that dwelleth in the secret place. See that? He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God. In Him will I trust. Surely He shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with His feathers and under His wings shalt thou trust. His truth, now there it is, His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Thou shalt not be afraid. Oh, friends, listen. We live in a world where fear tries to dominate our life. But I'm telling you, when Christ becomes your life and when Christ's love begins to dominate your heart, the Bible says perfect love casts out all fear. Thou shalt not be afraid. You know, sometimes I think, I wonder what I'm afraid of. I'm almost afraid of the thought that I'm not afraid of anything. That's weird. I know that's weird. But I mean, in terms of intimidated, because I know my father gives me good gifts. I know my daddy's for me. And when I have to face opposition, so what? We'll walk through it together, won't we, daddy? Yes. Why? Because I'm hidden with Christ. I mean, your son, your son never leaves me. I'm always with him. We're going to walk through this thing together, aren't we, daddy? And I'm going to learn something through this journey. And I'm going to come out on the other side like those three Hebrew children. I'm not going to smell like smoke. I'm not going to have my hair singed. Why? Because the fourth man is in the fire and he looks like the son of God. That's because he is the son of God. It says, thou shalt not be afraid. 
for the terror by night. And he starts listing this list of things that you could get afraid of. He said, you shall not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day, nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side and 10,000 at thy right hand. Oh, come on now, but it shall not come nigh thee. It shall not come nigh thee, the Bible says right there. You know, yesterday I was looking at this story that that was a headline on the internet. It was about this family of five that was over in the Netherlands and they decided to go through this safari park. Maybe some of you saw it. And they did something they weren't supposed to do. It said right on the rules, do not get out of your car. There are wild animals in this safari park. Don't do it. Whatever you do, we're not responsible for you once you come into the park, but please stay in your car. Keep your windows rolled up. Take your pictures through the window. And we would never know about this story had there not been a car behind them filming. And they're the ones who caught it on film. This family of five gets out because they see three cheetahs laying over there just kind of sunning themselves, just kind of chilling out. They're just big cats. That's all they are. They're just big cats. And they decide to get out of the car. Now, what made me upset about this is they've got a two-year-old, a little guy about that big. And you got mama and daddy and maybe a boy and a girl. And they start walking toward these cheetahs that are laying down and they're taking pictures. And they get away with that for a little while. And pretty soon you see two or three more cheetahs all of a sudden close in on them. And all the cheetahs are up and they are angry. What they tried to do initially is they tried to get that little kid separated from him so that he could be an easy target. And the father and the other two ran back to the car. They were quite a ways from the car, ran back to the car. And there was mama and the little boy and the cheetahs are closed in on her and they're hissing and they're swiping at mama. And the first thing she did is she snatched up that baby and pulled that baby high. And she began to walk back to her car, hissing at the cheetahs. But I'll tell you what, man, this story could have ended totally different had the people in the car and I could hear it on the arm going, oh, Jesus, Jesus. They were calling on the name of Jesus. Now, listen, I want to tell you something. We've all done dumb things in our life. That is at the top of the chart of anything I've seen in a long time. First of all, that you would step out and try to go up to a wild cheetahs, my friend. But to take your little one there? My heavens. My point is this. As much as that mother was protective of that little baby of hers, that young little boy, how much more protective is our father for us? A thousand shall fall at thy side, 10,000 at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Hallelujah, friends. We have been hidden with Christ, the light and light of the world, the life of the world. Hallelujah, God, thank you. There's times that the enemy wants to encircle us. He thinks for some reason that he could snatch us back into the kingdom of darkness. But friends, I want to tell you something. When Jesus put a seed on the inside of us, he said that seed remains. And there is no way that the enemy could snatch us back into darkness. We are forever sealed and hidden with Christ. He continues, he says, Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked. Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation, there shall no evil 
befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Thou shalt tread upon the lion, the adder, and the young cheetah. I mean the young lion. And the dragon shalt thou trample under feet. Look at these words now. Because he hath set his love upon me. This is an old covenant psalm. I mean, there's a lot of wonderful principles in here that are ours today, a lot of wonderful promises that are ours today. But he's not just set his love upon us, he set his love in us. <laughs> Jesus is the love of God. Jesus is the darling of God. And he said, I'm going to put my love right in you. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high because he hath known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. Now look at the very last scripture Verse 16 of Psalm 91, with long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Now, I want you to see something. If you've got to leave, just stay for this part right here because I want you to see this. This is why this psalm is so meaningful to me. We use the word salvation. We, I think we all understand what that word means. We understand being saved. I'm saved. What does that mean? Well, it means I get to go to heaven. It means my sins are all forgiven. I'm saved. Salvation. David didn't quite understand it the way we understand salvation, but he used that word. He closed out that 91st Psalm with that very last word. He says, with long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. The Hebrew word behind this word salvation, you might recognize it. It is Yeshua. Now what's the chances of that, huh? That is the Hebrew word behind our English word salvation. It is Yeshua. There are five letters that make up the word Yeshua. The Hebrew letters Yod, Shin, Vav, Ayin, and He. I want you to see these letters. The letter Yod means the right hand of power. Do you see it looks like a right hand? The letter Yod means the right hand of power. And with the stroke that makes the Yod, that stroke right there is found in every single one of the 22 Hebrew letters. It's the only letter that's found in every single letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Yod means the right hand of power. And then we have the letter Shin. What I love about this letter here is Shin is the most symmetrical letter of all the Hebrew letters. Do you see how symmetrical everything is? Do you see the right hand signifying the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Do you see that? All incorporated right into this name, Yeshua. But what this is symbolic of is Shin means fire. Doesn't it look like a fire? It looks like a fire. Overall, what shin means, in essence, it means agreement. You see, the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all in agreement. Nobody's towering over the other. They're symmetrical. They're all in perfect agreement. They all look exactly the same. Now, there's a lot of beautiful things hidden in the Hebrew letters. And then we have the letter Vav. The letter Vav is in the shape of a nail. And that's the word picture. The word association for Vav is a nail. 
Vav speaks, though, of connection. You see, it was the nails that connected Christ to the cross. This is awesome. It was the nails that connected Christ to the cross. One end of the Vav reaches up to heaven, and the other end of the Vav reaches down to earth. And what I love about this letter is when we start in the very beginning of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. How far will we get till we bump into this letter, Vav? We only get to the word heaven and the Vav surfaces. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In other words, he was saying, it's always been my heart to connect heaven to earth. It's always been my heart to connect me to you, son. I've never wanted a separation between us. Vav speaks of connection. And then we have the letter Ayin. Ayin. Ayin means eyes to see. Do you see what looks to be a set of eyes looking at you? That's Ayin. That is the fourth letter of this Hebrew word Yeshua. Eyes to see. And then my favorite is the letter Che. Che is the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it always means grace. The Hebrew word, again, behind our English word salvation is Yeshua. When we chain together the five Hebrew letters that build the word Yeshua, it literally reads like this. The right hand of power agrees that the nails driven in Yeshua connects heaven and earth to give us eyes to see by grace alone. Friends, you can't make this kind of stuff up. And there it is, just hidden, just below the surface all that time. Psalm 91 begins with the secret place. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High. Some versions of the Bible call it the hidden place. He that dwelleth in the hidden place of the Most High. But Psalm 91 ends with salvation. It ends with Yeshua. It begins with him taking us to a secret place. And that secret place is found in none other than Jesus himself, Yeshua himself. He that lives in the secret place finds salvation in Yeshua. Or another way to say it, he that lives in the secret place is hidden with Christ. Friends, the truths that reach out to us from the scriptures are these. Daddy has given us eyes to see grace. We sang about it in the last song. Through grace, he convinces our hearts that we are hidden with Christ in the secret place. Daddy has moved upon our formless and empty and darkened soul with the words, let there be light. He has separated the light from the darkness and he calls us good. In the secret place of grace, we continually taste and see that the Lord is good. It is in the secret place that we agree that the nails driven in our Yeshua, in our Jesus, was sufficient to connect heaven to earth and to give us eyes to see grace alone that we are hidden with Christ in God. Amen. Father, I want to thank you for this amazing truth that you've given us eyes to see. 
and you've given us taste buds to taste the good word of God and to taste and see that you are good. Daddy, you have placed us in a secret place, a hidden place called Christ. You don't hide us from one another, but you hide us, Father, from the ability for us to ever eat from the wrong tree ever again and return to darkness. We are hidden with Christ, the light of the world, and we thank you for that, Father. I want to thank you, Daddy, that as this truth is just reigning in our hearts, as this truth has set up in our hearts like a watchman, we can share this awesome truth with others that we don't have to be afraid. Jesus said, I've not lost one. Come on, folks. He said, I've not lost even one. That is the faithfulness of our God. Father, thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.